Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show. Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. Welcome, folks. I have, a, I have made an executive decision and put our host on hold. Uh, everything was going good during the sound check, and uh, of course, as we would have it about two minutes before we're ready to go live, we got some sort of issue with the host connection, and uh, where he can hear me and I can't hear him, so he has dialed in through his cell phone. Uh, but for those of you who heard that reverb or that echo during the intro, that might have been his cell phone picking up something going on with his mic. So I think we've got that resolved now. We're off to a flying start. Mr. Host, can you hear us? Can you hear me? No, oh, we can hear you loud and clear, sir. Not quite as crisp. I guess the, uh, I don't know what phone you're working with, generation, the iPhone 5, something 15 years old. Perhaps the mic on that is not as good as the headset you would normally use. No, that's true. I don't know what happened. It was working beautifully until something happened. Something happened. We're we're gonna we're gonna throw Blog Talk a bone on this one, and we're gonna say that that's an issue coming from our end. Perhaps a device yeah. issue with something the host is working with because. As far as technically speaking, uh, it's working beautifully. Uh, generally, it's the co-host, myself, uh, that has the technical difficulty connecting. And so with myself coming in clearly and being able to hear clearly, uh, we're going to say that that's coming from something to do with the devices that the host uh, was using or attempting to use. But nevertheless, we've got a connection. we got the host on. I'm here, the engineer, the call screener, the producer. Whatever other title you want to throw my way, we're back. It's uh, nearing the end of February. It's been about maybe four weeks since our last show, and we're excited to have another one. Yes, we are. Um, we got some things to talk about, uh, some big changes happening. Um, maybe we want to uh, do some, some recap of some sports that has happened between now and then, some some big things um, in sports, um, one of the things I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to I've connected my other mic. I'm going to see if I can hear you or you can hear me. 
uh, when I put it on just for a quick test. Let me know if you're ready, Mr. Producer. Yeah, we're ready. We're going to do the test live, folks. We're taking you on this journey with us here today. Test, test. Yeah, we can hear you. You are audible, sir. You've gone, oh, no, look at that. So now our host, I don't know what he's done. Perhaps he hung up his cell phone. We're, we're trying too many things live today. But anyway, as the host said, uh, we do have kind of a special um, topic for everybody today. It's not going to be our regular where we're talking about maybe a, a recovery-specific issue uh, that we generally tend to cover on the shows. But as you guys all know, uh, especially the host uh, has his ear to the ground in regards to the political climate of the field that we work in. And whenever there's something breaking or on the horizon, uh, we tend to hit you with the show that covers some of that from time to time. And so this time around, uh, we, we do have some political brewings that are coming down the pike, uh, some that will, or, or the big one that we're going to talk about today, that will actually take effect uh, next year, January 2021, uh, and it's a big one. So that's what we've got on tap for you today, uh, and we're going to be excited to discuss it. Like I said, um, it, it may not be the most relatable topic for folks who call in uh, with their treatment-related questions or, or folks who are listening in, listening in to get the uh, treatment perspective. However, um, it, it, you know, you can't have one without the other. Obviously, at the end of the day, the field that we work in uh, does need to be funded. It is a business. Um, and so there are business-related things that, that are very, very important to the field uh, with which we work. So we, we do find it important to keep you guys up to date on that from time to time. And so that's what we've got on tap for today. So until the host can figure out his connection – uh, I will wrap sports for a minute and give some of that recap. Now, I'm sure uh, our host, as sneaky as he is, probably has some soundbite that I have. I didn't screen the entire soundboard today before our show, so I wouldn't be surprised if he uploaded some soundbite. He's going to try and rub some salt in the wounds of us 49er fans. Uh, as we all know, and as you all know who've listened to the show for long enough, our host is from New York. Uh, and so he is indeed a New York sports fan and the only team that I know of that he roots for outside of the New York metropolitan area are the Dallas Cowboys. And so he is most certainly not a 49ers fan uh, and I'm certain he will be happy to uh, rub my face in that one uh, when he gets the opportunity to do so. Um, and then also something that I will pick his brain about that has to do with the sports world, but not sports directly. Uh, which is going to be the passing of Kobe Bryant, which I'm sure um, basically the, the whole world is aware of that having happened since Kobe Bryant was a figure that transcended the sport that he played in. Um, and so I've got a, I've got some something to ask the host, and he might give us some philosophical feedback uh, when, when I hit him with that question. But I hear some rumblings on the other end of the line. Mr. Host, are you done hanging up on us and testing uh, five different types of mics? Can we just stick with one that works this time? Yes. Yes. 
All right, perfect. You do sound a little faint. I'm going to throw that out there. I'm not sure if the audience will experience or is experiencing the same thing, uh, but you do sound to be a bit off in the distance. Well, test, test, test. There you go, loud and clear. Let's just, whatever you've done just there, let's keep it like this for the rest of the show. All right. So as I was uh, telling the audience, I decided I would get right into the sports recap since you said there were some events in sports you wanted to cover. I already informed them that you were probably going to do your best in some witty kind of way to rub salt in the wounds of myself and all the other 49ers fans in the Bay Area. So here's your opportunity. Go ahead. What would you like to say about it? I am the last person to rub salt in the wounds when my teams are uh, barely sniffing the playoffs. Okay, okay, fair enough. Fair enough, uh, but that is one of the big events that transpired. So I believe we were on record uh, as saying, I believe your prediction was 49ers-Ravens with the Ravens winning, and my prediction was 49ers-Chiefs with the 49ers winning. And so we did end up seeing 49ers Chiefs, however, uh, although they should have won and piddled the game away with seven minutes left, and I'm opening uh, up this can of worms myself here, and uh, it's hard to talk about, but uh, needless to say, the 49ers and Chiefs were in the Super Bowl. The Chiefs won it, and uh, everybody wants to crown Patrick Mahomes the next best thing when he had a two-interception, one-touchdown game with a poor quarterback rating. So don't quite get that narrative, but they need to speak about something. All I'll say is that it was a good game. And um, that's all I could say. I'm still pissed off at my team. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Fair enough. Uh, were there any other big sporting events? You said you wanted to do some sports recap. I did mention the passing of Kobe Bryant uh, while you were I, I reconnecting there. That. Yeah, I did want to talk about that. Um, I did hear what you were saying about him, uh, you know, even though he was a basketball player, that he kind of crossed over um, as a cultural figure. But you know me, Mr. Producer, um, I come at this from an aviation angle, being an aviation buff. Oh, yes, of Um, course. And so I've been keeping very tight tabs on the investigation and, you know, words on the street from those who are in the know, um, et cetera, et cetera. As I told you after this happened, that I am not a helicopter fan at all. You You did. You did. Yep. Um, I have my own reasons why I don't like helicopters, and you will probably never catch me in one, um, unless it was an absolute, unless it was a life flight. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're life flighting you out of somewhere. (laughs) Exactly. Or uh, the Coast Guard was rescuing me in the uh, Arctic Ocean, something like that. Yeah, right, right. So uh, Kobe Bryant's wife, has filed a wrongful death suit against the helicopter company, the, the oh, owner boy. of the helicopter, uh, which I fully expected would, would occur, and claiming that the pilot or the company should have known that the weather was bad and that they should have never attempted to make that trip. 
So needless to say that she will be successful in her suit because the what actually happened was that they knew what the weather was and they were following all the proper precautions in terms of you know getting guidance from air traffic control and working around the weather getting in line it was very busy over that airspace so they were you know in a holding pattern waiting to get instructions to continue moving forward and it appears that the very experienced helicopter pilot got spatially disoriented and by the way this happens to the best of the best huh uh, it happens got spatially disoriented and lost control of the helicopter. No that's good. Their prelimin- that's their, and other helicopter pilots who have weighed in, that's their preliminary assessment of what occurred. Yeah, all I had heard on the news was that they had, they had either recovered the engines or recovered something enough to rule out engine failure. So it was not no like mechanical a mechanical either. issue. No, I listened to the ATC recordings myself, and everything was absolutely normal until they weren't communicating anymore. Huh. Interesting. Well, that yeah, that's interesting how that might unfold. Now, I did tell the audience that I was going to ask the host uh, a question in hopes to tap into some sort of philosophical point of view um, as it pertains to your answer. And so, and it is about Kobe Bryant and his passing. And so I noticed that uh, like for myself, okay, as sports fans, we all know we are very, very loyal to our teams and uh, we tend not to like other teams. And then you, you, you will, you know, you only like your own team and then you might even have a strong dislike for some of the rival teams. Um, and so when Kobe Bryant passed, I, I was after some time had passed, you know, I was reflecting on this and I thought, you know, like Kobe Bryant was an incredible player, no matter who you're a fan of, what, what team you're a fan of in the NBA, you cannot deny that he was an incredible talent. He was a, a transcendent talent. You know, he's arguably one of the top five or top 10 best basketball players ever to hit the hardwood. Uh, but he played for the Lakers for the entirety of his career. And as anybody knows up here in the Bay Area, uh, we are not fans of the our Southern counterparts' teams. So Lakers, Dodgers, any L.A.-based team, uh, they tend to be our rivals. And so I have never been a Lakers fan. I never liked the Lakers. Uh, and I found myself rooting against Kobe Bryant in many situations. Uh, but that said, even when watching the game, I, I would be able to respect and appreciate his game. But never liked him or the team say. And when he passed, when I got the news that he had passed, I was touched. I was saddened by the news. I, you know, there was a, I felt some of that grief and, uh, and this was actually before it was discovered that his daughter had passed with him as well. Initially it was just Kobe Bryant. Um, you know, and obviously knowing that his daughter passed with him adds another element to the story and you start to tap into the human element but it was just Kobe Bryant. Um, I was moved as though I were a fan of his in the Lakers. And so 
I was wondering if what you think that is, that so many people in the world, even people who weren't basketball fans, uh, certainly people who were basketball fans but weren't Laker fans or fans of his necessarily, that the whole community and the whole world was touched by this. And I was wondering if you could shed some light into why you might think that to be the case. Well, like with most human beings, Kobe Bryant was a complicated cat. Um, and when someone kind of departs from us, so we in the sports, we the sports fans, the pure sports fans, kind of focus on what he meant to the sport, you know, what he meant to us as fans and things of that nature. And then you go to the other level of people who are in entertainment and aren't really pure sports fans, but know of Kobe because he's a global iconic um, figure, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things that kind of crystallized for me during that first week to two week period was how it hit me because he's, he's my daughter's era. You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. My, 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 my nephew's era. So it, it, for them, Kobe was their dude. So if it wasn't, because uh, the next era is really the LeBron era. Right. Okay. Uh, right. And so the era Kobe, prior to Kobe was the Jordan era, yeah. Exactly. Right. So Kobe was their dude. Um, and so, you know, my daughter was very impacted by the news. Um, so, you know, the way I am is, you know, when someone passes, um, and especially if they're not – oh, let me put it this way. In the early 90s, when Mickey Mantle was on his quote-unquote deathbed, and they were interviewing a lot of fans who were big-time fans of his when he was in his prime in the late 50s and the 60s, I could not understand at that time, you know, why these people were acting this way. I'm like, oh, I said, you know, dude, you're 60-something, he's 70-something. Why? I mean, why are you carrying on like that until I got older? And then I realized, I said, wait a second. How would I feel if one of my sports heroes passed, even if I'm as a grown man? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so when I thought about it that way, I said, wow, yeah, it would impact me because it's a connection to my childhood. And, and it was the person was very impactful to me in the sport that I played, et cetera, et cetera. So even though I don't like to use the word idol, in the sports context, I'd say, you know, many people, for many people, he was their basketball idol. Okay. So I was not in the least bit surprised about how impactful it was, no different than if if something happened to Jordan, LeBron, or other iconic athletes in their sports. And to me, I mean, obviously it is ten times worse when someone is taken in the prime of their life, not the prime of their playing career, but in their life. He's you're talking about someone 41 years old. Right. He's just in the prime of his adult adult life. So, and the shock of that and the suddenness and then the way it happened. So all you put all of those things together kind of adds to the, you know, the, to the impact. Very different than if, you know, like if someone has lived a full life, they're at the tail end of their life, 
And so, you know, if they're 82 years old and they pass, you know, you're impacted, you're saddened, but it's not out of the realm of order. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. Whereas this is outside the realm of order or as we human beings consider order. Some people obviously would say to that that, you know, no, no one knows when their time is and when their time happens, that's their time. So whether it happens if they're age 16 or they're age 60, that's their time. So I didn't listen to the um, the service or the memorial thing yesterday. Um, I'm just not into that. Um, but I was I was surprised, though, that his wife was able to be so eloquent and speak um, because this is new and fresh. And I'll just close by saying that my wife really crystallized the tragedy in terms of from the family's perspective for me because she said, listen, his wife lost her husband, has to grieve that. Right. She then lost, she then lost her daughter, has to grieve that. Her remaining daughters lost their father and their sister. They have to grieve that. And then she has to support them in their grief Yeah. on top of that because they're all very young. Right, right. So you can imagine what she is under having to deal with the grief of losing her husband, the grief of losing her daughter, and then the grief of, of supporting the grief of the remaining children who've lost their sister and their father. That's a significant amount of stuff that she has to overcome. Oh, it certainly is. I don't know if I answered your question, but that's my spiel. Yeah, no, no, no. I think, you know, it it just, I think it has to do with how I had prefaced it, saying that, you know, it touched the world because he was somebody who transcended the sport that he played. He, He was bigger than basketball, right? So you have some NBA stars who are NBA stars through and through, uh, but that's the only light that they'll ever be seen in, uh, which, you know, I imagine when people think of Kobe Bryant, they think of basketball first and foremost, but there's a relation that people have to him in knowing him beyond his star power in the NBA. Like there, there was, there was something else to him, um, in that regard to, to his, to his popularity. So I think that, I think that does have a lot to do with it. Yep. Keep in mind, keep in mind that he wasn't very well liked while he was a player. Right. He was hard to get along with, with his teammates and the opposition didn't like him. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with two things. Number one, he wasn't raised in the United States. He was raised in Italy. Okay? He spoke multiple languages. So yep. even at 18, he was a little more mature and advanced than the, the younger players in the league. And, you know, because of that, you know, his maturity with their not yet maturity, it came off as him being aloof, arrogant, and things of that nature when that really wasn't the case. He was just a little further along in the in the maturation process in terms of his focus and all of that all of that those things than other players. But no different and, and of course he pushed his teammates, you know, beyond belief, but that's no different than other 
fantastically great players, Jordan, Tom Brady. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say, that, know, that's, cetera, that's always what you heard about Jordan. You know, getting getting into fist fights with his teammates. Right. You know, the, the ultra, the, the super competitors. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the, the fact that after he retired, he just moved right into the next phase of his life of what he wanted to do, writing books, putting on short short movies and things of that nature, and obtained immediate success in that area. Um, so, you know, for him, basketball was done, and he was 100% focused on his new career. So there you have it. There you have it. All right, sir. Well, did you have any other – we got the Super Bowl. We got Kobe Bryant, aviation, little aviation sprinkled in there. Any other um, big topics to get to before our main topic of the day? Nope. Not that I can think of. All right. So I, I prefaced this, uh, and I don't, you may, I don't believe you caught this because you weren't on the soundboard. Any, any, any iteration of you, be it cell phone host or anything else, uh, while I was telling the audience, you know, that the topic today – is a little different than our normal topic where normally we're going to focus on something specific to recovery and something that's treatment related um, as like a direct connection uh, and that, but that every once in a while there's something that happens in the political climate that will have an impact on the field that we work in. And while that stuff might not be what we generally talk about or the most exciting stuff, it's very, very significant um, because it impacts, you know, how treatment is delivered and what we do and, and the ways that we're able to assist people that need assistance. And, um, and I did inform the audience that, the, that our host generally has his ear to the streets in these regards and um, is always keeping up on the, the political forecast and what's coming down the pike. Uh, and that this is something that's very significant that's going to hit us next year in January. And so it was important for us to do a show about that. And I will say uh, visions of deja vu because I feel like it was last January, perhaps the January prior that we were talking about political changes. And that was that initial change to 90 day residential. So now we're now we're taking that a step further. And uh, I'll let you take it from there, Mr. Host. Sometimes I wish I didn't have my ear to the ground. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so in 2015, the state of California applied to the federal government to get a waiver for how they can use the Medicaid dollars that are um, afforded to the state of California. And they would then use those Medicaid dollars to redesign how they provide substance abuse treatment in the state. And they ended up calling that system their organized delivery system, or ODS. And one of the major changes was that for 60 years, Medicaid dollars could not be used to provide residential treatment unless it was perinatal. And then if it was perinatal, it was limited to a certain number of beds. You couldn't, I think you couldn't go over 16 beds. So one of the changes that they were, they say, I'll use the word that they won from the feds in the waiver request was to, number one, 
get a waiver of the 16-bed limit, and then two, allow them to use Medicaid dollars for all residential, not just perinatal, any residential. And then the state, once that got approved, used that to then redesign their system, which we've been operating under formally since February of 2017, but we, Our Common Ground, started operating in pretend fashion in conjunction with the county because we were one of we were like one of the test providers in yep. 2016. And one of the major changes for us, forget about the funding aspect, but the programmatic aspect for us was that residential treatment was going to be limited to 90 days. We were the last remaining long-term treatment provider in the county. Maybe a handful left in the state. Um, remember, we come from the old daytop model of, you know, 12, 13, 14 months. Um, and there's a lot to be said for that model. No other model can, can, can match the, the outcomes that the longer-term residential treatment has in terms of people staying, staying clean, staying in recovery, so on and so forth. But we slowly over the years, you know, in the starting, let's say, in the 2010, whittling down that time, nine months to eight months to six months. And we kind of stayed at six months for a while until we, we had to then go to three months, 90 days. Now, mind you, everyone else had already, most of the pro, all the programs in the county were already 90-day programs. We were the only ones that were long-term. Well, all over the country, and I, I kind of already knew this, forget about the Medicaid, the use of Medicaid, but 30-day programs outnumber longer-term programs, you know, almost more than two to one. And when you say outnumber, so, you're talking about the people they service? Days. No, uh, just the number of programs. There are oh, ways, okay. 30 days, 30 days nationally is the norm. With anything longer than that, 90 days, you know, or more, if that even exists anymore, is is the exception. Okay. And so, when the current waiver expires December 31st, 2020, this year, last day of the year, calendar year, and the state made the decision that they were not going to, they. Based on the negotiation for the last time when they got the waiver approved, the, from what I read, it appears that they got the 90-day approval of, of to cover residential and Medicaid dollars, like by the skin of their teeth. Like it was a it was a tough negotiation to sell CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, on approving that, but they got the approval. They decided that. For the new waiver, effective January 2021, that they're not even going to make that fight, make that argument, because they don't believe that they're going to win it. And so what that means is that all residential programs in California that use public funds, i.e. Medicaid, will have to be 30-day programs. And that's a... 
you know, world-changing <laughs> change for us. Yes, yes. To do a 30-day program. So we got an inkling of that in September 2019. No, I'm sorry, in July 2019. And then the county unofficially confirmed it in September 2019. So we met in November county told us, the providers in the county, that what we want you guys to do is we want you guys to work together and design or tell us what a 30-day program, residential program, will look like in this county because we have no idea. It's what they said. And so that we're prepared when January 2021 comes around, it can be a smooth transition into that new paradigm for all the providers, and there's only five of us left that provide residential. And that it kind of, we kind of have the nuts and bolts are similar in terms of what you, you know, what you're going to do in that 30-day period, because everyone is now going to be funneled, if you will, to outpatient. Now, the question for the state and, and the county is, other than the fact that they didn't want to make that argument, because they believe that they will lose this time around, is what's the benefit to them? Now, ordinarily, if people were beating down the doors in your county to get into residential treatment, and as a result, you had a waiting list, then that would make sense because you would say, well, instead of having to wait 90 days for a bed to open, it'll open up in 30 days and we can get more people into residential as an intervention and stabilization, not as a treatment, but as an intervention and stabilization, and then transition them down to outpatient. Well, unfortunately, the problem with that is that people are beating down the doors and there, are, there isn't a waiting list, at least in our county. I can't speak for San Francisco County, Santa Clara County, or Alameda counties, which are almost two times larger or more than county we're in, San Mateo County. So for us, if, if they are looking at, hey, we can, A, get more people into residential, and B, we might be able to save some money because obviously residential is very expensive. So if you reduce how long a person stays, maybe that will save money. Well, it's not going to save any money. It doesn't change anything for the programs in terms of their operating costs. So the only way to look at it is that it's it's really just a federally driven thing to kind of standardize across the country what the Medicaid dollars are being used for instead of having like three or four states that use it for 90 days and everybody else is 30 days. They're just going to standardize it across the board. And 30 days is the norm, not the 90 or more. Interject at any time if you have any questions. Yeah, so so I'm, I'm wondering yeah. there, so a couple of things. The first being, are you of the belief, or so as not to incriminate you if uh, people are listening in live here, um, is the general belief that the that the county did not want to try and battle this because they genuinely believed it was a lost cause and they wouldn't win, or 
do they not mind the transition to 90 to 30, or does that somehow make their jobs easier? It's not the county, it's the state. Okay, right. The county, the county is kind of in the same boat of responding to this. That's why they came to us and said, hey, we need you guys to help us kind of design what this is going to look like, because we have no idea. Okay, gotcha. So, but so it's a state, and this, like I said, the state is looking at the difficulty they had five years ago with getting the approval. Because I'm sure that the feds were pushing back, saying, hey, you know what, we'll pay for 30 days, not 90 days. That's, that's way too much money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But somehow they got the 90 days approved. Okay. So this time around, they believe that they're not even going to waste their time making the argument for 90 days. They're just going to they're just going to accept their fate that they're only going to approve a 30 days uh, cover 30 days of residential with Medicaid funds. Got that. So the the driver and the problem is up, up top at the very top of the chain, so to speak. When you look at the branches of government. So that said, okay, foregone conclusion, the state doesn't want to ask for it. They don't believe they're going to get it. I think based on what you just said, uh, they are um, justified in that belief. Um, so that said, then the trickle-down effect, um, how do the providers feel about this uh, upcoming change? What well, what do the providers believe about this? Is it good, bad, and different? Just something we have to do? Pros, cons, complaints, compliments? Well, you know me, Mr. Producer. Um, I operate on the 24 to 48 hour rule. So for me, when I initially heard that this was coming down the pike, you know, I thought it was you know, jacked up, and of course that's not the word I used. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I had the response that any person that's been in the field for a period of time and, and knows the tradition of what residential was, you know, I was like, you know, what the hell has happened to residential treatment? So, yeah. But that was only for 20, that, I only allowed that for 24 hours. After that, my whole mental and emotional, if you will, focus shifted to what we're going to do to adapt to that. And, and one of the reasons why it shifted very quickly is because the state has put forth their vision of what they envision substance abuse treatment looking like in California from the highest level of care all the way down to the lowest. And their vision matches exactly what we do. So what they want to see happen is people go into residential for 30 days and it's used as an intervention and stabilization. And while they're there, the program is spending their time preparing them to step down to that next level of care, which is intensive outpatient, with, here's the key part, with recovery resident support for those who need it. 
and why that's important for those of you who are in other states. California has a serious, serious housing crisis. Yeah. And as a result, a serious, serious world-leading homeless crisis. And over 50% of people who come into residential treatment are homeless. Not necessarily traditional homeless, i.e. living on the street, but meaning that they do not have a place of their own. They might be staying on someone's couch. They might be coming out of jail. They have no place to go, et cetera, et cetera. So all the variations of homeless that you can think of, we got them. And so if someone – it makes no difference whether someone's in treatment for – residential for 30 days, 90 days, 6 months, 12 months, if they have no place to go go to when their residential experience is finished, well, that's a problem because if you just drop them off a cliff, we know what's going to happen. So they need right. support. So that's kind of the reason why residential was so long is so people can get other aspects of their life together and in order and lined up while they're still in the bosoms, if you will, of residential treatment. And this way, when they do step out of residential, okay, you know, they're working, they've saved money, and so on and so forth, and they have a better opportunity to get to that next level of care, outpatient, and have support, whether they're in clean and sober living, whether they found an apartment, which is impossible now in California, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, when I heard that, I said, okay, well, that's a, we already do that. That's, a, that's already our model. So for us, okay, there's not much change there other than, of course, adapting to a 30-day residential than a 90-day. Right, right. So my next thought now kind of moves out of, you know, the OCG world and into a, a bigger, bigger picture, and that is, well, the county said, a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, that they're not putting any more money into recovery residences. So we only have two in San Mateo County. Right. Us and Project 90. And so the question becomes, and this question is being asked by other providers, do we anticipate that because people are only going to stay in residential 30 days that we're going to need more recovery residence beds? Well, if you think about it logically and in theory, the answer would be yes. However, because no one in the county is operating at 100% capacity, the county at this moment in time as we sit here today is not committing that they're going to increase funding for recovery residents. And I believe that what they're going to do is see what, how, how things manifest itself and then act accordingly. So as uh, we'll, we will remove me from an employee that is directly tied to the field um, and impacted by such political decisions. And we'll just say as a, as a citizen, as a, as a homeowner in the community um that if if I'm sitting and listening to everything that was just explained, that last step about um, like the logical kind of connection of the dots that, okay, then the recovery residence is going to become 
a far more powerful and necessary tool uh, in this new in this new model, and uh, so these beds will have to be expanded upon or utilized and, and filled to capacity, and then funding will need to follow suit. We will need the funding for that. Why is it that the decision makers in the county cannot connect these dots that seem to be able to be connected by a, a five-year-old? I wouldn't say that they're not connecting those dots. I would say that they're being very cautious in terms of making predictions on where they may increase dollars as a result of this change. And because, like, our recovery residence is not full, Project 90's recovery residence is not full, so let's say January 2021 rolls around and we're three, four months in and, okay, we, you know, we're, we're, we're up from, because we average like, I want to say 63, we average, it's an average, 63% of capacity. So let's say that that, as a result of this change, we're now seeing that we're operating at 80, 85% of capacity, okay? And yep. Project 90, the same. Well, that still leaves 15% free capacity, and, and and I'm just putting myself in their shoes, trying to think from their perspective. They would say, well, there's no need to increase funding in that area yet because we still have available capacity that's not used. So until or unless we're 100% full and kind of averaging that 90% and above and Project 90 the same, and or there's a waiting list for people to get into a recovery residence in this county. Um, I don't see them seeing a need to, to make a, a, a decision on that. That's so, why I think that they'll wait to see what manifests itself. Okay. And so I, I would say uh, as, a, as a citizen sitting in this meeting, that's fair enough. But my, I guess my question would be, okay, when you're operating a recovery residence at 63% capacity, and then we say, you know, could you give me X number of clients? And let's say that that's 24 clients for the sake of this conversation. And then we say, okay, so how many staff do you have staffing a recovery residence with 24 clients? Okay, we you say okay, so we have one staff uh on shift for 24 clients. Would would we then say or, or or I might then ask, okay, so if we see the number of clients um in the recovery residence increasing say from 24 to 34. So 38 being the max. So not quite at the max, but around well, you know, that might be 85% uh, or whatever. So we're going, we're going 10 more clients, uh, which then, so you look at the, um, the day-to-day, the day-to-days, the whatever day-to-day activities, med calls and such. Uh, and then you also, you tie in the element that these, these clients coming into the recovery residence are no longer clients that presumably have 90 days of recovery under their belt uh, so as you and I pointed out in one of our one of our more famous series, the trimesters of recovery, 
Presumably, the folks now coming into the recovery residence have finished their first trimester. They're on to the second trimester. Now you've got clients who are coming in who have basically had an extended detox uh, and maybe nothing more than that. So the the uh, the the risk, if you will, the the risk factors that come along with housing um, uh, ten additional clients. And having a house who, where there are uh, clients who've got 30 days under their belt uh, creates an environment that would then warrant more staffing. And that is something that would be needed even if there were still available beds and we were not at or exceeding capacity by virtue of a wait list, uh, that that would then automatically increase the need for funding. I don't disagree with that at all. <clears throat> so that's the I uh before you before you go on I'll throw in there and you may you may be uh speaking to this point anyway but so that would be if I again if I'm just if I'm Billy Joe sitting in that meeting that that would be a, a you know a logical kind of linear way of thinking about it that I would then ask the decision makers uh, you know, put that on the table and answer that for me. Well, yeah, and there's more there's, there's more questions than that. So we've been meeting month. We started meeting in January, and you know, monthly meetings, and then that, so that's the providers and the county, and then the providers meet separately from that. So we're, say we're meeting twice a month because I made it clear. Look. I don't want August to roll around and we're still twiddling our thumbs and we have like no focus, no direction. We don't know what the hell we're doing. I don't operate like that. When August rolls around, I want to have a pretty clear idea of what our program is going to look like uh, and how we're going to transition smoothly into, you know, this this new look that we're going to have. Um, not turn around on the day after Christmas. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> What's the plan? So, Taking what you just said, there's another dynamic that's going to be in play, which we're going to be discussing at the March meeting, and that is every provider in the county of out. Obviously, there's way more outpatient providers. In res, there's only five residential, and there's about, let's say, between 12 and 15 outpatient providers. Every one of them has a cap of how many clients they can take based on the number of staff they have. Because in California, you are limited in terms of you can only have 12 people in a group. Each group requires one facilitator. The moment you have 13, the 13th person, that requires a second facilitator and a second group. Correct. Okay. So what do most programs do? Well, if they're, if they're small-ish, they say, hey, we're limited to just 12 people. So they... So if they're, if they're already at 12, they can't take anymore because then that's going to require another staff person. Follow me? Yep. So with residential being shorter, that means people are going to come out of residential quicker, right, and obviously stay an outpatient longer. And if people are at their cap, what's going to happen? Where are these people going to go? Which means that they're going to have to increase the funding because people aren't going to increase their cap without knowing that they can hire another person. 
and, and okay. for those who don't know how California operates, so you're limited to 12 people in the group. You need one facilitator for the 12 people. But when you use Medicaid dollars, it comes with a lot of paperwork. And at least from our experience, our clinicians can only handle about six people on their caseload because of the amount of paperwork they have to do on a weekly basis. So even if you have 12 people in your outpatient program, you still need two counselors to do, you know, to have six and six on each caseload to manage the paperwork requirements, the documentation requirements. Yep. So there's a number of moving parts, obviously, to this. And we have we have to operate on two tracks because OCG us we have to have our own track of what we're doing and you know for ourselves, and then we're also participating as a to, with a larger group, you know, trying to help kind of design what the residential experience is going to look like. Um, and we already talked a little bit about that, and, and pretty to me it wasn't it's not really that difficult to be honest because. We already know certain things won't change. You still have to do an assessment. You still have to do, a, a, you know, um, an initial treatment plan and so on and so forth. But we already know that uh, many of our clients in that first 30 days of treatment spend a lot of time doing what? You know, getting their physicals, TB, you know, getting their doctor's appointments lined up. And if they have something, a chronic thing that wasn't they didn't take care of, getting that squared away and, uh, if they got legal issues, getting that lined up and squared away, and if they got a, if they need to get a, an ID or whatever, they have to get that squared away. Yeah. So if you think about that, after all of those, all that administrative stuff takes place in the first 30 days, they don't really get settled. You know what I mean? Like settled where they're in the house every day of the week, not you know, they're out on Monday, out on Wednesday, out on Friday, so they're taking care of legitimate things. You know, that kind of dies down like the latter part of week three and week four. So if you think about that, well, if they're only going to be there 30 days, then you're, you're going to be doing very little, quote, unquote, clinical treatment. Or if you do do any of that, you're not going to be getting into any deep stuff. You know what I mean? It's going to be a lot of psychoeducational stuff and things of that nature, just preparing the person for the next phase, which is, intensive outpatient, which is where the bulk of their treatment experience will take place. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, like, like you said, and so, and I wasn't even thinking from the perspective that, oh, you know, they're, this is where they're getting a lot of their um, kind of logistical stuff handled. Okay. Let's get our IDs. Let's make sure, uh, you know, our TB is good. Let's make sure we've got our physical. Let's, you know, get our um, our prescription medication in order if that's what needs to be done. And so in addition to handling all the logistical stuff treatment-wise, let's say that all that stuff was handled. The client came in day one and didn't need to do anything outside of the facility. It was all handled and they were ready to tackle treatment. 30 days, as you and I have discussed on, on our trimester shows and, uh, you know, and probably referenced in several other shows, you know that's a that that is a nothing more than a glorified detox period of time, 
And so, like, well, uh, you know, there's not much, like you said, clinically that's being accomplished. Well, I likened it. I, I was explaining to my other colleagues. <clears throat> I was describing what the entry experience was in daytime. And, you know, for that 30 days when you're in the entry unit, you're taking care of all of those administrative aspects of your, of your life, and they're trying to get those things squared away before you go upstate to the residential facilities so that you don't spend a lot of your time going back and forth unless you need to for, you know, continuing medical care or continuing legal matters and things of that nature. But they want to get it squared away to the point that they kind of know what they're doing, what the focus is going to be in those areas. And so when you do go upstate, that's kind of already lined up for you. And so it's a lot of that that's going on. And then just kind of getting you used to the residential environment, you know, back to, you know, on like a normal sleeping pattern, eating three square meals a day. When they, just those simple things is what kind of the first 30 days, as we've talked about numerous times, is about. That becomes even more evident now because after 30 days, there is no more. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? After that, you're leaving. Right, so, right. Um, so there's one more aspect I want to talk about and because what we've spent time talking about today, I consider the – how can I phrase it? The um, like the rudimentary aspects of this change, the you know the black and white aspects, which you know if you kind of know what you're doing, you can kind of pretty much get it lined up and ready to go. But there's one other aspect that to me is the biggest concern in a change like this, and that's your staff. Okay, you want you you care to expand? What what about the staff in particular? Well, the staff, and this is not just OCG staff, but this all the programs are, are talking about this. That you know, people are used to a certain way of what residential is, and as a counselor working in a residential program. You know, your expectation is to have a period of time to, you know, exact your influence on someone to participate in getting them on their path to recovery success. And as treatment, residential treatment has kind of shrunk down, you're getting less and less time to kind of put that influence out there. And so if you think about it, even though the process is going to have to be the same, the process is not easy. When Think about when we were a 12-month, 13-, 14-month program, and a person walks in the door and they leave 12 months later. As a counselor, you get to see who and what they were when they walked in the door. The moment when the light bulb went on, the process of seeing how the change manifested in them, in that person and then seeing the change in, in, in real life, seeing it played out, playing it, seeing it lived out, acted out, and then the person getting ready to leave and move on to the next phase of their you know, experience 
um, a totally different person than when they walked in the door 12 months ago. So right. as a counselor, you get to see that, live that, experience that, and, you know, you you garner good feelings from that. Whatever small part you may have played in that process, you garner good feelings from that. When that gets taken away, you then have to redirect and find, you know, a different mechanism for your value. And that's what people struggle with is, you know, what's my value now in this process as a counselor? Okay. Um, so now person's in treatment for 90 days and, you know, you get, let's say, 45 to 60 days to really kind of impress upon them what you want to impress upon them. And then they move on to another phase of treatment where they're going to stay for a longer period of time, 10 months, 12 months or longer. Um, so you don't, you no longer get to see the outcome. You no longer get to see that transformation in that 90 day period. You might, you might experience the light bulb coming on. Okay. Then maybe, right. Maybe, but maybe if you're lucky. Right. But at, at a 30 day interval, you're not going to experience that. And so, in my opinion, what has to happen, the, change, the, the, the next change that has to happen, the next evolution that has to happen for the counselor is about their role as a foundation layer. Because that's all that a counselor who only has someone in their grips for 30 days, you're, only going, you're, you're going to have to be a seed layer, a foundation layer. And you're going to have to be okay with that. You're going to have to be okay with that you're not going to see the manifestation of your seeds, of the foundation that you've helped lay. Right, right. And for some people, that's not an easy thing to accept. To right. more than that. Yeah, sure, sure. It's a part of, you know, it can, it, it can be and is for many a part of what drives them to this field to begin with. Uh, you know, they like you said, not not just knowing on some level that you are a part of an individual's change, but being able to witness said change, like you said. So I, I envision that there'll be a lot of work spent on mentally and emotionally preparing counselors to adapt to this change, counselors in the residential program specifically, to adapt to this change and prepare to be seed layers and foundation layers and, you know, obtain their, um, you know, whatever it is that they get from being in this field, get it from those, you know, laying the seeds and laying the foundation. Right, right. Not easy. That part, yeah, that part won't be easy to me, in my opinion. And so there are a lot of, you know, other executive directors that are, you know, very worried about whether or not they're going to lose staff as a result of this change. Hmm. Um, I don't I don't think that will be the case. I think rather than lose people, it will be more of a struggle to impress upon them that there's still value in the work that they're going to do for 30 days and getting people to 
you know, believe that, acknowledge that, and accept that. Sure. That's definitely, yeah, that's definitely a part of it. That's definitely a part of it. Because another concern that others have expressed, I don't share this concern, is that, well, you know, because we're just going to, because we're moving to 30 days, clients aren't going to want to come into treatment. And I said, no, I don't believe that to be the case because clients only know what they know. It's very different for someone who's been in treatment before and said, hey, wait a second. Doesn't treatment used to be three months, six months, nine months? That right. person may say, oh, well, it's not like there's going to be, oh, this program is 30 days and that program is 90 days. Everyone's going to be the same. So it doesn't make a difference where they go, they're, you know, if they're gonna, unless they're going to pay privately. Uh, but even private programs are 30-day programs, so it doesn't make a difference. So to me, I don't share that concern because people adapt to whatever the treatment is that's available to them. I mean, some counties in California that are poor counties only have outpatients. And the people that live there, that's all they know. So, they, you know, you only you deal with what you know. It's not like they had residential and residential went away. And they're like, oh, wow, we used to have residential. So someone, let's say, coming out of jail, and this is their first time coming into treatment, and, you know, they are only going to experience what is available to them, and they will make do with that in whatever fashion they're going to make do with it. And as we people in the field know, you know, whether it's 30 days or 130 days or 1,030 days, you know, if you're not committed to your recovery, it doesn't make a difference. How many right. people have stayed in treatment for 12 months and left after 30 days and fell flat on their face? Yeah, yeah, or even longer than 12 months. Right. Yeah, that's that's very true. That's very true. So boosting the morale of the staff if indeed they need a boost for the short duration that they will uh, cultivate these these bridges with these clients and then uh, bolstering the, the outpatient program since that's where the majority of the heavy, heavy lifting is now going to take place. Yep. And so uh, you've got it in the topic description here, and you may have you may have made reference to it during the show, but just to repeat for the audience, uh, this will be effective January first, twenty twenty one. That's correct. Okay. Yep. It's uh, not as far away as we think. You know how fast time moves. Yes, sir. Yes, I sir. I have this nightmare scenario that it'll be August, and we'll be asking ourselves, "Okay, so what are we going to do?" Well, that's not <laughs> going to be me because I don't operate that way. But um, some of my colleagues, you know, that's just their nature. How you know, everyone, everyone's different. But you know, historically, that's how they've operated. And I'm just trying to be that, you know, that person whistling in the wind to them, saying, "Hey." Let's get this done. Let's get this done so that you can coax the last three months of the year, just tweaking here and there, but you're ready for this change. Yep. Yep. Huh. Well, yeah. I mean, we, uh, like you said, not the way you operate. So I'm sure we will, we will be more than ready. Uh, we will actually, I'm sure we will be implementing, you know, with the exception of the actual 30-day duration, but all the other ways that we will be operating, I'm sure we'll be implementing that long before January 1st, so uh, we can have a smooth transition. Yep. 
Well, interesting stuff. Interesting stuff off the hot stove for the political climate uh, in the field of recovery, sir. Uh, I think that was a very interesting topic. Again, maybe not the most exciting for uh, our listeners, but uh, very, very important nonetheless um, because it does have a direct impact uh, on uh, how we provide service and the services that we provide and ultimately the services that the clients receive. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That's all I got, sir. All right, sir. Well, that was uh, that was well done, folks. Um, we are out of time for the day, but I'm sure we will be. Uh, this will be something that I imagine we will at least keep folks posted on up until we go live in January in our upcoming shows. Uh, we will uh, we will keep people abreast to. Uh, what we are doing to prepare ourselves for this political change. Uh, and I'm sure we'll be back in about three to four weeks um, to give you all another episode. But if that's all the host has got, then we are done for the day. We appreciate uh, everybody who continues to give us their ongoing support, whether that be listening via the podcasts that we have available, listening live, uh, calling in. Uh, we we appreciate the ongoing support. Uh, it's the only reason we do the show, and so we uh, hope that everybody has a safe and productive uh, handful of weeks here until we catch up with you all next time, and uh, have some fun and safe weekends. And we will catch you all on the flip side.
that's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Until then, baby, are you-